Hello, I'm Wayne Park, and welcome to Oikonomics, a podcast about the science of ministry, work, administration, and the summing up of everything. Keep coming back for relevant teachings and talks on these subjects and more. Please enjoy the show. Welcome to week seven of SF506. And uh, today we're talking about reflections on truly spiritual vocation. I'm using air quotes there to talk about vocation um, that perhaps is not necessarily ministerial or vocational Christian ministry, but we're talking about the work of all believers. Um, We're talking about uh, the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, as uh, was uh, framed uh, by people from the Protestant Reformation talking about the priesthood of all believers. For me personally, this is a great passion um, to understand ministry as not just about uh, those called to the pastoral or to the mission field or to those type of specifically Christian vocational ministries, but really the priesthood of all believers um, for people in all types of work uh, must recognize that what you do is spiritually significant. And it's important to see that. So as we talk this week seven about truly spiritual vocation, we are reading side by side with Timothy Keller's uh, Every Good Endeavor. Um, Timothy Keller writes together with Catherine Leary Alsdorf. And let me just begin with a couple of words about both of them. Um, I serve on a board with Catherine Leary Alsdorf on the Theology of Work project. And so together with her, we are thinking very much about the priesthood of all believers. And so um, a little bit about Catherine Leary Alsdorf. She paved the way for the faith and work movement when she founded the Gotham Fellows at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. One of my colleagues, and eventually you may have a class here at Fuller with uh, Dr. Matthew Kamink. Uh, Dr. Kamink was formed under her leadership as he was together with her responsible for the first Gotham Fellows curriculum. Now this was a faith and work uh, year-long cohort where people in the marketplace would gain some theological insight into not just work itself, but their industry, whether it was the arts or law or medicine or finance or or whatever they found themselves coming to New York City for. And since then, the Gotham Fellows curriculum has, it's made its way around the country, perhaps even around the world as well, as many churches these days are thinking about the integration of faith and work. Now, Tim Keller, who is the primary author of Every Good Endeavor, is someone that I have admired from afar while he was alive. Uh, He has recently deceased Uh, from cancer, Um, and uh, in his lifetime, there's probably no other preacher who I have listened to their sermons more or even emulated more. Um, I did have an interest. I remember uh, well over maybe 15 years ago, I had an interest in working at Redeemer at his church after seminary, but it didn't come together for me that way. But he remains in my mind to this day, the gold standard of preachers, and for me personally, what I aspire to when it comes to preaching and teaching. Now that said, I cannot write 
or teach the way he does. Just one glance at the endnotes of this book and you'll see that this accessible, quote-unquote accessible and popularized title is incredibly eclectic. Uh, he's a seeming expert in everything and he's so well read. So I will say right now that uh, this podcast is not going to attempt to teach his content as much as it is an attempt to teach my own content. After all, I did my own doctorate of ministry with a focus uh, with a, f- a focus on faith, work, economics, and vocation. So I'm going to teach my content, but I think you'll find along the way both his ideas in his book as well as mine in my podcast teaching, they should probably synthesize quite nicely. Uh, And I'll also say that pretty much most of everything he says in his book, I can endorse anyhow. So let's dive into it today as we talk about truly spiritual vocation. Now, uh, I'm bracing myself and, and probably bracing you as well that this is likely going to be a longer teaching today. Uh, The next few may be a little bit longer. The reason for that is, like I said, um, I did my own doctorate in this subject, and so uh, everything is important. And so I'll be bringing various and numerous things to you. But let me just start with an organizing header right here up at the front for this podcast episode. I'm going to talk about two things, two things today. The first is the futility of work the futility of work. And then the second, the second half or the second header is the hope of work, the hope of work. So we'll be talking about the futility and the hope of work. So let's go ahead and begin with that first heading, the futility of work. I think it's apt for us to begin with that. Um, After all, uh, there is this presumption that many Christians have that when we die and go to heaven that we won't have to work, that we will live as spirits that just float around. And, and I'll address that. And so there's a sense about the futility of work. In fact, I think one of Keller's chapters is also titled that, The Futility of Work, or something along those lines where he's addressing um, the despair and the difficulty of work. It's, it looks like it's in chapter, I'm sorry, part two of his book. Um, For me, when I think of the futility of work, the perfect metaphor that comes to mind goes back to my my background as a a former New Yorker. Uh, This goes back to the 90s when I was commuting on the subway to Manhattan. And I would hop on the 7 train in Flushing, Queens, and... Uh, 30 minutes out, once we were in the city, once I was in the city, I would have to transfer from the 7 train to the 40, I don't remember, it was like 4, 5, or 6 downtown or something like that. And at the 42nd Street Grand Central Interchange, there there were these series of phrases um, in the tunnel that you would pass by. So as you're walking through the tunnel, there were these pillars overhead and as you walked under these pillars, these, these, um, these corresponding, these subsequent pillars, there was this message in little phrases and snippets that you would read little by little. And I found out later that this was actually an art piece. Years later, I found out that this was an art piece titled 
the commuter's lament. So listen to this. So you're, you're bleary-eyed along with another million commuting tired people on a Monday morning and it's cold and dreary outside and you're walking from the 7 train at the 42nd Street Grand Central Terminal Interchange and you see these series of words overhead that go like this. Overslept. So tired. If late, get fired. Why bother? Why the pain? Just go home. Do it again. And for me, that art piece titled The Commuter's Lament, those words which you would see morning after morning on your commute, or depending if you were uh, going home the opposite direction, you would see it day after day on your way home. It was depressing. It was like the condition of the modern worker in this hamster cage that was um, New York City. Tim Keller talks about this. He talks about particularly the book of Ecclesiastes in his chapter 6 titled, Work Becomes Pointless. Work Becomes Pointless, the Futility of Work. We're talking about the similar thing here. Uh, Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I'm going to read some of the similar passages. Chapter 2, verse 11, uh, the author of Ecclesiastes, who I'm going to call Kohelet. Kohelet is the Hebrew word for the preacher or the assembler, the teacher. And I'll refer to the author of Ecclesiastes henceforth as Kohelet. Um, Kohelet contemplates futile work and says in verse 11 of chapter 2, I considered all my activities which my hands had done, the labor which I had exerted. Behold, all was vanity, striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? And so in contemplating this futile, fruitless, almost painful work, uh, Keller calls it pointless in chapter 3, but you, you can almost get the sense of the pain in this. I can think of a younger version of myself commuting into Manhattan, just squirming in my, in my chair, in my cubicle, um, because you'd, you'd be, rather be doing anything else but this. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, where God pronounces a curse because of the the sin of Adam and Eve. And he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. It sounds like the Protestant work ethic right there, this grim picture of this is my curse and my punishment. (laughs) Well, Ecclesiastes seems to be uh, in lockstep with this dismal picture of work. Um, and it continues, really, this, this uh, picture of work in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Uh, let me continue reading in verse 13, the uh, Kohelet. Kohelet says, I saw that wisdom excels folly. As light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. 
And yet I know that one fate befalls them both, both the foolish and the wise. So let me just pause there um, just before verse 15. We see Kohelet acknowledging that in the world of work, you have, you have basic Hebrew ethics, basic ethics. Um, blessed are the wise, blessed are the good, while the foolish perish. I mean, that summarizes Psalm 1. Or Proverbs 1, you have the picture of Lady Wisdom personified. Lady Wisdom is hardworking, is industrious, ethical. But then you see a turn in verse 15 of chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes where Kohelet says, Yet I know that one fate befalls them both, and I said to myself, As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why have I been extremely wise? So here we see that there is this awareness that whether you are good or bad, whether you are uh, financially industrious or you are lazy, whether you are the early, uh, the, the early bird or the late riser, it's all the same. It's all the same. And in verse 17, Kohelet says, So I hated life because the work which had been done was grievous to me. It was futility. So this is right here the perfect picture of the, the pain, um, the, uh, the pointlessness, the futility of work. I remember many years ago um, when I was um, still in seminary and transitioning out and I was beginning to pastor um, I recall reading an issue of Inc. magazine. Um, whenever I tell this story, I have to clarify that's Inc. I-N-C as an in incorporated, uh, not Inc. I-N-K um, as in the tattoo magazine. But I was reading this book, Incorporated. It's about entrepreneurs and business and stuff like that. And the cover story was about this entrepreneur in Vancouver, Canada, which was not far. Actually, that's where I, I did my Master of Divinity. So it was in the same city as me. So I took an interest, and I read about this guy in Vancouver, Canada, an entrepreneur. Uh, so this was circa 2007-ish, around there. Uh, this was uh, at a time when uh, the dot-com bubble had burst, but there was still the rise of all of these new kind of websites and and so this guy starts a dating website, a dating website. And this dating website that he starts, it becomes among the top 10 websites visited of that year. And as I continue to read this article, I, 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 this increasing sense of astonishment, I was astounded. Um, within two months of opening his website, he had already raked in a million dollars using Google AdSense, marketing, really kind of base, you know, cheap marketing. And as the article continues, um, you, you get the sense, you know, that this is a really kind of, you know, tech savvy, but really nerdy, geeky guy. I mean, that's fair, you know, geeky guys rule the world. Um, but but he, he, he worked two hours a day. All he did was go in, check his stats, and then rake in 
millions of dollars and he would purchase, you know, the top penthouse, the tallest building in Vancouver. Um, his picture in the magazine, he's surrounded by models and he's on the cover of the magazine. And you kind of look at that and experience a crisis of meaning. There's very little to commend this person um, uh, in terms of hard work, work ethic, and yet tremendous success, and yet tremendous influence. Uh, these days we talk about influencers, and I couldn't help but to sour a little bit at that story. The book of Ecclesiastes, along with other books like Lamentations, Job, etc., they give us this kind of picture that in reality, it's not as simple as we think. It's not as simple as this basic formula of ethics that I presented previously, that blessed are the wise while the foolish perish. But what about this? You see, the world we live in lives in those gray areas where perhaps ethics seems to be turned upside down, or at least there's so much gray that we, we don't really know if, if the early bird always gets the worm. So we begin to wrestle with the meaning of work, just like the author, just like Kohelet is here. Is there indeed any intrinsic meaning or value to secular work at all? If that's the case, I'll quit my job and I'll do really meaningful work, ministry, work that is ethical. Ah, but even there, eventually, you'll find that there are many gray areas as well. So what is, at the end of the day, the purpose of work? Is it just a necessary evil? Is it a place where we just show up and try to save as many souls as we can along the way? Or is it the type of place where we'll just make a lot of money and give it to the church, give a lot of money to the church? Allow me to just live in this kind of futility, this despair, just a little bit longer. I've been trained up as a good preacher um, to, um, you know, preach the tough news first before we give the hope. But let's hang out here just a little bit more because Kohelet continues on and shows us just how deep this rabbit hole goes. In verse 21, Kohelet says, When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous, and even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. That picture of not even being able to sleep at night and that the hamster wheel or the, or the uh, progress bar is still scrolling and even at night, our minds do not rest. I don't know how many of you relate to that, but I certainly do. Also, forgive the gender-specific language here. Um, Kohelet is speaking to um, a, a male readership, but the truth is, male or female, this is the universal human condition. One more analogy, uh, metaphor that I think of that, it's, it's a story that I tell that I think paints the picture of the futility of work. I think of um, the story of a worker, maybe during medieval times, and this worker was imprisoned by a harsh, harsh ruler. And in prison, the worker was forced to turn a, a heavy crank, kind of like something you would see um, 
from that movie Conan, Conan the Barbarian, where he has to turn this crank. But the thing is, he's turning it on a wall, and he doesn't know what's on the other side. And so for years and years, this poor worker turns this crank, and he plays this message of hope in his head. He says, perhaps I'm grinding wheat for the villagers so that they can have bread. One day he says to the guard who's watching him, there, is there a mill on the other side so that we're grind, I'm, I'm, I've been grinding wheat? And the guard says, no, there's, there's no mill on the other side. There's nothing. Well, the worker remains ever hopeful. And as he continues to grind or turn this crank, he says, then perhaps it's a water wheel. On the other side of the wall, there's a water wheel. And it's irrigating the farms for the villagers. You see, he's searching for hope here. And the guard says, nope, that ain't it either. There's no water wheel. Yet ever clinging to hope, and really you can begin to hear the metaphor here, the worker searching for meaning the worker says, is it a merry-go-round? At least tell me that I'm turning this crank so that the children can have some pleasure in life. After all, what do I work for but the children? Many a parent can say that. And the guard finally unchains the worker and brings him out to show him that on the other side of the wall, nothing, nothing at all. You see, this metaphor uh, shows us that we search for meaning on the other side of, of, of the moon, on the other side of heaven. Is there meaning? Now, thankfully, we're about to come into the hope of work here. And, and Tim Keller paints this beautiful picture. He tells a story of Leaf by Niggle, which, by the way, I hope you don't miss that story in the introduction. Very important story, uh, which I hope you can all read. Um, there is something on the other side. But in the case of this tragic story, this worker who sees that there was nothing on the other side of the wall, he, he falls down and he dies because there was no meaning to his work. There's no meaning. Now, let's transition. I've camped this out long enough in the futility of work. Let's move to the second piece, the second heading, the hope of work. Let's talk about the hope of work. Now, I, I, I mentioned uh, Leaf by Niggle. Um, hopefully you did read that. It's in the introduction. And... Um, uh, Leaf by Niggle is a short story written by J.R. Tolkien. And Tim Keller recites sections, recites parts of Leaf by Niggle. Don't miss it, please. Make sure you read it in the introduction because it's moving. Because on the other side of the wall, there is, there is something. There is something. And in fact, you can see, uh, well, let me back up here. Leaf by Niggle is a story that J.R. Tolkien wrote when he was having writer's block. His great life's work, which we all enjoy today, The Lord of the Rings. Um, he, was, he was stuck. And so he took some time, a couple of days off, to, to just kind of sketch, uh, to, to rest and rest his mind. And, and, and he sketched this little story called Leaf by Niggle. And it's, a, it's, it's about, um, I'm, I'm not sure, I think it's a hobbit-like creature, or at least some some interesting little person, all his books are about interesting little people, uh, who's named Niggle. And if I understand it correctly, the English word Niggle, to niggle away at something, means to obsess over the details. And uh, Niggle is an artist. 
and he's trying to draw the perfect tree. But he spends his entire life painting one leaf. And we see that this character, um, he lives a good life, an ethical life, a meaningful life. He cares for people. He sacrifices so much so that at the end, in, in helping someone, he gets sick and he dies. And he never gets to finish his tree. His life's great ambition, his life's great work, he never finishes it. You see just a canvas, canvas there with one leaf incomplete. But the beautiful climax of this story is in heaven, Nigel, um, he enjoys the afterlife. He enjoys uh, the new creation. In the great resurrection, he finally sees the tree, his tree, finished, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind. Before him stood the tree, his tree. Those words are powerful and moving because for anyone who has done incremental work towards some final vision or has worked towards some great legacy or great objective, you can be enthralled by this exhilarating vision of your completed work on the other side of the wall. That it, it, it doesn't end in just, you know, a, a, like a uh, a, a metal crank and there's nothing on the other side. There's something there that your life's work, the finished work of your life, the consummation of it, it will remain with the resurrection of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. I want you to understand that this is a lot more than just a quaint feel-good story. And very similar to Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer, who we read recently, this little story, Leaf by Niggle, it's deceptively simple. In fact, I would say Tolkien is deceptively simple. That you think that this is a story about heroes and good versus, but there's a lot of philosophy. There's a ton of philosophy. And I would, I would also say there's a lot of theology underneath it. Even in this little story, Leaf by Niggle, there's a lot of philosophy and theology underneath it. That this notion that on the other side there is something. This is metaphysics. This is the, this is the great ideals as it was taught by the ancient Greek philosophers, by Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. The notion of the good, of the tree. The sense that our work, this side this side of heaven is not something that will just disappear and burn up as if we're just polishing the brass on a sinking ship. No, that we can believe in the resurrection of all things, and that includes your work. Allow me to digress just for a moment here. What do you think is the great antagonist of Scripture? If the protagonist is Christ and the redemption of all things, what is the great antagonist of the Bible? The obvious answer is Satan. But I would like to posit that the great antagonist of Scripture is something called Gnosticism. That's spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M, Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an ancient Greek philosophy 
that espoused soul flight as the telos, in other words, the final outcome and objective of humanity. That really, the purpose of heaven is nothing about the resurrection or the redemption of all things, but rather it's about escaping from this stinking, dying, uh, wrinkling and thickening body of mine. That the furthest I can get away from my body, the closer to heaven I can get. That is the epitome of Gnosticism. Um, I think a, a great analogy for this is Agent Smith in The Matrix, who is finally frustrated with Morpheus. I want those codes. Give me the codes. He takes his earpiece out and he starts saying, Morpheus, I'm going to tell you the truth. I hate this place. It stinks. It smells. You need to give me the code so that I can escape this place. This is Gnosticism uh, in popular culture, really well represented. Agent Smith is the ultimate Gnostic right there. But Gnosticism caused, it causes three problems. There's three, three reasons why it does significant disservices to Christian, Christian theology. You see, you, the more you learn this, you're going to recognize that it's everywhere. It's, it, it's very pervasive in Christian teaching, and it's very problematic, very problematic. The first problem with Gnosticism, uh, ancient Greek Gnosticism, particularly as it was combated by Christianity, is that it, it, it upholds esoteric knowledge, secret esoteric knowledge that's only for a select few. The pathway to true enlightenment has nothing to do with redemption or Christ coming and ennobling and, and redeeming us. It's, it's about what you know. You see, this is elitism at its worst, because only the wealthy had the luxury to sit around and attain enlightenment. For the lower classes, such soul flight was inaccessible. This esoteric knowledge, this first piece, it's exclusivistic, it's elitist, it's just not Christian. The second thing about Gnosticism that was problematic for Christian theology is it, it, it repudiated the body. What I mean by that is it, dis, it, it put the body down, it, it canceled the body out. Now you think about this. Christ incarnated in human flesh. He resurrected a human body, and he ascended into heaven a human body. If that's what Christ did with himself, the firstborn of many brethren, as it says in Scripture, why then would the rest of us die and only go to heaven as floating ethereal ghosts? What's the point of resurrecting a human body if really, in the end, all of us, our telos, our ultimate objective, is to just become spirits. The true Christian teaching does not put down the body. It honors, it resurrects, it redeems the body in all of its stinkiness and in all of its sweat and all of its smell. Just like Agent Smith says, Christ incarnated, incarnated into that and for that matter, he ascended it. Now, this is important Christian theology. All to say that the point is not getting people into heaven, but the point is the resurrection of the dead. And the third and last reason why Gnosticism just is unhelpful uh, for Christian theology is it, it propagates, it promotes 
escapism. Escapism from reality. That really the de facto philosophy underneath all of this is just if I can escape this this world and this job and this work and this body and this life, I'll fly away. It's uh, a beautiful hymn, I know, but also very Gnostic. I'll fly away. The thing is, Christianity doesn't promote escapism from reality. It promotes probably more than any other worldview that I can think of, an embrace of reality, a full, uh, a full acceptance of things as they are. Because Christ, again, did not come as an escapist. He came as a, as a redemptive, a, a redeemer of all things. So to come back full circle, leaf by niggle shows us that in the resurrection of all things, your work stands the test of time. Even it stands the great fire in the end. That perhaps your work can stand into posterity. And that gives it tremendous meaning, value, scope, and even hope. In conclusion, what I wish to say is this. Your work matters, even if it's not traditional ministry. You can trust that what you are building, creating, striving, working towards, it is real. And on the other side of the wall, there is something beautiful and complete that will astound you when you see it at last. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to learn more, visit us online at www.oikonomics.com. That's O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-K-S dot com.